invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that passage in 1 John that we read a little earlier. Benjamin Franklin once famously stated that our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise that it will endure. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain. You know the rest of the line, right? Except death and taxes. That's certain in America, is it not? But I'd like to add a third certainty to that short list today. A spiritual one. And that is, is that you can know that you know God. That you can know that you have eternal life. It is the heartbeat of this epistle, 1 John, that we've been studying together. It is the heartbeat of our text. In fact, in the very middle of our 11 verses, in verses 3, 4, and 5, three, twice in verse 3, he talks about knowing God. We know God, it says. We can know him, present tense. So we know him right now. And then he says, and we have come to know him. In the original language, it's the perfect tense. It means there was an event in the past, but the results keep going. So you can know God and you can keep knowing God and you can always know that you know God. It's a claim that John makes that every one of us ought to be excited about, to say the least. It's possible to know with certainty that you know God and God knows you. Last week, we went to the text in Matthew 7 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for Father's Day. And from that text, we found out that there are a lot of people on Judgment Day who will say, Lord, Lord, and they will say that they know God and that he knows them. But we saw at the end of that text that for many of them, and that's the haunting word, isn't it? Many of them, he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because there's a difference between being religious and knowing about God and actually having a relationship with him by faith and knowing God in a personal way. Now, see, last week it said that, see, there are people who think they know God, but they don't. But that doesn't mean you can't. It just means that there is a right and wrong basis of how you can have that certainty, how that you can know God. Jesus, in his words we looked at last week, said, see, you either build your life and your foundation on the foundation of the rock of the promises of God's word, or you built it on sand, your religious works. But he's going to go into detail, John is, this week, and he's going to tell us how or should say, what is the right basis on which we have assurance? How can we know? How does God say from his word that we can be certain that you can walk out of here this morning knowing that if you died, we had a funeral here for Josephine just yesterday, long-standing member of our church who was here, and she knew, Josephine knew that when she died, she'd go to heaven. That assurance can be yours. It's the doctrine of assurance in the Bible, knowing for certain that you know God and have eternal life. And so John's going to give us, and please listen to both, two bases of our insurance. One is objective, and that is, through Jesus' death, how God has dealt with our sin. That's the first one. It's objective. It's what Jesus did historically for us. 
almost 2,000 years ago. But there is also an assurance based on a subjective thing, and that is how we deal with our sin. So it's not just Jesus' death, it's his life that gives us assurance. So if I could say today's message in one little sentence, it would be this. You can have assurance that you know God when Jesus is everything to you. And by everything, I mean that his death and his life both are actively at work in you. So John's going to tell us this. Please listen. That he, see, it's, his death has done more than just one thing. It has defeated our sin. It has defeated it. It has no more penalty for us. We're going to see that today. But it also has defeated the power in our lives. It doesn't have any, no more penalty of sin and no more power of sin. In other words, it doesn't just change what's going to happen to me in the future. It changes what happens to me right now in my life. So as we have the both objective and subjective basis of our assurance, it's not that you just go with a little check mark. Okay, I got the objective. I, well, let me work on the subjective. No, this isn't something that you just check off. It's about having a relationship with God. That's what it's all about. And so the Bible wants us to know that we, have, we can have both of those things. So let's look at them and unpack them one at a time. Verses 1 and 2, the objective basis. Jesus' death. Now, you'll see in our text, it begins with this, verse number 1, my little children. That's an identity marker. Look at verse 7. He also calls them beloved. Now, he's going to use those, a to, those two markers a total of 20 times throughout the entire text. And they are echoes of what Jesus did when he called his disciples his little children. So he wants you to know today, if you are his family, if you are his followers, here's what will be true of you, that you know God and you know him only through Jesus. What did Jesus do so that you could actually know him? Well, the text is going to tell us, look at verses 1 and 2. It tells us that he died for us, and that death for us changes us. Look what he assumes. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, you've been changed. You used to just sin all the time, but now you don't have to sin. In fact, the expectation is, is that you don't sin the same way you do. You used to. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again for you. He saves you and he sanctifies you. It's not one or the other. It's both. And he's writing to them because Jesus' death has changed them. Listen to me if you've been here especially for years. If Jesus' death has saved you, it doesn't just change your destiny. It changes your desires and your deeds. See, sin doesn't dominate you anymore. He has defeated it. It's not that we are sinless, but because we will sin less, the Bible says. Now, he says, you shouldn't be sinning, but... If you do, because no one's perfect in this life, not even Christians, right? Hardly. He says, but when you do sin, see, we have, look at verse 2. We have an advocate. Verse 1, I'm sorry. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, Jesus is our lawyer. Now, we've watched them all. There's been for 
longer than I've been alive. Lawyer television shows have been around forever. How many of you remember or are old enough to remember Perry Mason? Anybody remember Perry Mason? Wow, we are old in here, right? But Perry Mason never lost, never lost in court, never lost, not even once in court. He was, he was really good, right? Never lost a case because who's your lawyer? That really matters. It matters. A lawyer is the Greek word paraclete, and it means to stand beside you. When you go to court, you need someone to stand beside you. I've been in court. I was there once when I was 16 and got a speeding ticket, had to go to court. Um, and it's important to have, I've been in cases for people who, uh, you know, been in church past in my ministry to encourage them during some of their times in, in, in the trial in the courtroom. And I've stood there and I've seen people who had someone stand behind them and their lawyer was not good. Not good. I said, I felt awful because I said, this isn't going to turn out the way they want it to. But I've also been in there when I thought that lawyer is spectacular. I mean, he is making all the difference, right? Now, in America, we, we are allowed to have lawyers. You know the Miranda rights, right? You know the, part, the first part, you have the right to remain silent. I hope you've never heard this. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. And it says, you have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you questions. You have a right to have a lawyer during the questions, right? So it matters, because when they start asking the questions, you better have someone there that can represent you. You know, in the Bible, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? And someday you're gonna stand before, and can you imagine you're standing before God and Satan is the prosecutor, and he's asking you questions before God that you have to answer, you better have someone there who's qualified. And can I tell you, in the courtroom of heaven, there is only one. There's only one. I heard a quote that said, when, when Jesus died for our sins, God didn't close the court of heaven. He just added a lawyer. You know why? Because God is still holy and God is still righteous. And when we stand before him, we better have someone who stands beside us, an advocate in our place. Jerry Spence Perry Mason's the fictional lawyer. Jerry Spence is real. The most successful trial and criminal lawyer in all of history literally never lost a case. From 1969 to 2007, he never lost a case, including O.J. Simpson and many other very, very famous trials. But Jesus is a different kind of lawyer. He's never lost a case in the highest court of all. And that's the court of heaven. But the question is, when he represents you, how is it that when he stands before God and Satan asks the questions, how can he declare you to be righteous? You look around at your life today, and I don't know your life probably any more than you know mine, but here's what I know about every one of us. We're sinners, and we are not sinless, and we are not righteous, and we are not perfect. So how can Jesus stand before us when the questions of our life are asked? And how can he say, hey, you let this one into heaven. You know why? Because they're righteous. How can he declare us to be righteous? Well, verse 2 says, he is the, not only our advocate, he's the propitiation. That's a big, hairy theological word. You know what it means? It means to avert the wrath. So if you've offended someone, and they're angry with you, and there's a punishment coming for you, you need someone to be your propitiation. So when Jesus stands in heaven next to you as your advocate and God says, this one should be punished, and he looks at you, 
Jesus says, no, they don't, because I took your wrath. The judgment and the penalty and the wrath that should have been poured out on them for their sins, when I died on the cross, see, I took it. Romans 5, 9 says, since we have been justified by his blood, we shall also be saved from wrath through him. When I was growing up, when we got in trouble at the Walker home, if you got in big enough trouble, you got spanked. And so and my, my dad would say, okay, go to my room. Oh, you know when that happened, it was trouble. And unfortunately, I went to that room way too often. So I got in trouble, and I was a little older, I think, when this happened. I think I was like 12, and I don't know exactly what I did. But I, I went to my dad's room, and he came in there. Now, normally there would be this talk. And he wanted to know that he wasn't angry at me and he wasn't doing this and he wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't out of control. So he always explained everything, right? And I wanted to say, please just get it over with. I've heard this talk, right? So I was crying. I always was crying before he even got, I got a spanking, right? But this one time, it was different. My mom never was in there. My mom could not handle it. So one, this time, my dad called my mom in, and I go, oh, great. This must be way worse than I think. My mom's going to actually watch it, you know. But my dad said, I want you to stand over there, and I did. And he took the paddle, and he gave it to my mom. And instead of me leaning over the bed, he did. He leaned over the bed, and my mom gave my dad the spanking. And I thought, I love this. <laughs> 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 can we arrange to do this every time, right? But my dad got up, and by the way, she just didn't do a little bit. She did like he would have done to me. And I found out earlier that my dad actually had my mom tested on him. And so it was no joke. I mean, it, it had to hurt because it used to hurt me, right? But I remember him saying to me, see, that's how much I love you. I took your punishment. And then he looked at me, he goes, but I don't love you nearly as much as Jesus does because he really took your punishment. Wow, that impacted me. I started crying all over again. And then I thought after that, I don't want that ever again because it makes you feel, you know what? Wow, you could love me that much that you would take my punishment. See, that's what God has done. The Bible calls it halasmas. That's the word in Greek, propitiation. It means literally mercy seat. See, God had the Ark of the Covenant, and on each of the ends of it were two cherubim, and they covered where God's presence was in the, on the, in the middle of it, on the cover of it. And this little place in the middle of it was called the mercy seat. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and, and, and to appease or assuage God's wrath for the sins of Israel, they would take a lamb and slaughter it and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And for another year, God's anger would be satisfied until Jesus came. And in chapter 1 of 1 John, remember it says, we are cleansed by his blood. That's how we have forgiveness. That's how we have fellowship. That's what Jesus did. He took his blood and he stopped God's wrath once and for all, for all of those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus' cross, death, and resurrection. Can I tell you this morning, please? Don't think that you can be your own lawyer. 
I've seen that too. I've never seen it work out. You can't be your own. Your good works are not your lawyer. Your good works cannot propitiate your sin. You say, Pastor Walker, I'm religious and I'm Baptist. And you know, I'm Baptist. That's not going to help. Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, you name it. And I try to do as good as I can. And by the way, I was baptized as a baby and I was confirmed. And I can tell you, and I have the pieces of paper. And See, your good works will not be what you want standing next to you when you stand before God. You want Jesus. He's the only one, as God's son, who took this punishment for our sins. But listen, it's greater than that. The Bible says that he didn't just propitiate our sins. Look at verse 2. He said he propitiated the sins of the whole world. Now, in Jesus' John's day who wrote this, all the gods, the false gods, were either local or tribal. You know, there, there was not one God who was everywhere and every place. They all were local gods, and they did certain things, certain things they could and couldn't do. But here's what John says. That's not the true and living God. See, the true and living God, he propitiated for sins, and his salvation, his sacrifice, is sufficient for everyone everywhere, which means this. The sins of everyone, no matter who you are, there are no geographic, there are no racial, there are no ethnic or national boundaries, none of them. It doesn't matter whether you're white or you're black or what language or culture or background or status you have. See, God's propitiation through the cross death of his son is sufficient for anyone anywhere who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. But he does it for free. See, his lawyer work is pro bono. <laughs> you can't earn it. You can't pay for it. He did it out of love for you. The only other propitiation, the use of that word in 1 John is chapter 4 and verse 10, where it says, not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did Jesus die like that? Because he loved you. He loved you enough to take the penalty of all of your sins, to take all of the wrath of God that you deserved. And if you put your faith and trust and see, he, that's the objective basis. The objective basis of your assurance is that Jesus died for you, rose again, took the wrath and the penalty that you deserved. And when you trust in him, that's the basis of knowing you have God and you know God and he knows you. But there's a second one. It's not just the objective basis. See, it's the subjective basis. It's not just Jesus' death for me. It's Jesus' life for me. And that's verses 3 through 11. He wants you to know that you have to have, yes, an internal experience of Jesus coming into your life and saving you. But that internal experience can't stay internal. If it's real, then you also have an ongoing external experience. It's not just orthodoxy, believing the right thing. It's orthopraxy that your life will change. And so what he's going to do to give us a test, and you can tell yourself this morning, how do I know? Well, I know, okay, if I believe Jesus died for me, right? Well, there's a lot of people who believe those facts, but never really changes their life. How can I know if that's true inside of me? Well, he's going to tell us three things, and they're all marked off by the same phrase. Can you look at them in the scriptures with me? Verse 4, 6, and 9. They are marked off by the little phrase, and the one saying. See it there in verse 4? Whoever says, verse 4, he says in verse 6, whoever says, 
Verse 9, whoever says. See, it's different than the identity marker of being his child or being beloved. No, this is a different identity. This is an alternative group of people. They seem to know God. They seem to be religious. And they have the vernacular and the language. And they have some of the things that, are, you know, they might go to church and some things. But they're a different kind of group altogether. They're the ones saying things. And Jesus says, I want you to figure out today, are you the real group? Are you the ones who just say these things? They're red flags. He's going to put up three red flags so that you can test yourself to know for sure. Have you been following on the news about the Titan submersible tragedy? It is just that. It's a tragedy. And I've read quite a bit on it. And one of the phrases that came out in the first sentence of an article I read was this. It did not have to happen. Five lives lost unnecessarily. And then they go on to explain why that's true. Marine experts warned the Ocean Gate company who made Titan, warned them that it wasn't safe. Listen to this. Years before they ever took that voyage. Years. In fact, five years. All the way back to 2018. Every year they were warned that this will not work. They had criticism all the way back that far and even an operations manager in the company who worked on it said that he was concerned that this sub was not safe enough to go into deep water. In fact, one of the workers there sued the company because what they were doing was not meeting safety regulations. Experts said that the company evaded safety regulations by doing all their water tests outside of America waters and international waters so America could have nothing to say about what they were doing. But they didn't listen to any of the red flags. None of them. And not even two hours into the trip, the whole thing was completely crushed and imploded. Can I tell you this? It didn't have to happen. They did not listen to the red flags. John is saying to us today, see, I'm going to give you three red flags for your eternal safety standards. Here's how you can have assurance. Here's how you can realize whether you are really a Christian or not. And on judgment day, you don't want to get to judgment day and say this. That didn't have to happen to her. That didn't have to happen to him. But what are those three red flags? Well, the first one is in verses 3 through 5, real quickly. The first one is disobedience. It says, and by this, circle that little phrase in verse 3. By this, because he repeats it in verse 5. By this and by this. This is how you can know. This is what the subjective standard of your life should look like. He says, and by this we have come to know him if, see it? If we keep his commandments. If you obey God. This is the behavioral test. Does your life match what you say that you believe? That's the safety standard. Your character, your behavior, the way that you live should be changing. The Bible says that when you know Christ, you will become more like him. Bit by bit at times, incrementally, yes. But the trajectory of your life will be moving to Christ-likeness. Verse 6 says... If you abide in him, you say that, you ought to walk as he walked. 
Becoming like Jesus isn't optional for real Christians. It's essential. See, John says slow sanctification works. No sanctification does not. Keep his commandments. Well, Pastor Walker, which one? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Is he talking about there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament? Well, what do I, it's not what you have to do. It's what you do based on what he has done for you. And the two that he's talking about are probably what John heard from Jesus' lips. In John 13, Jesus uses almost identical phrases to what John is saying here. He talks about a new commandment, and that new commandment is this. You love God, and you love others. See, it's the vertical and the horizontal matching up in your life. He's saying this. If you say, hey, I know God, but I hate people, I hate other Christians, I, I'm, I don't treat them right. See, he says there's something wrong. You have to keep his commandments. And the word literally means, it's a military term. It means to guard it, to protect it. See, you're serious about it in your life. It's the difference, look at the verse, between being in him and not in him. But don't confuse that. We do not earn eternal life by our obedience to the commandments. We evidence that we have eternal life by our keeping God's commandments. See, obedience is not the cause of our salvation. It's the effect of our salvation. If you truly have salvation, the effect will be that you will become obedient out of love for what God has said in his word. So let me say it straight to you. You can't know God and ignore his word. You cannot truly know God and completely be oblivious and totally ignore and be indifferent to what God says. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, was talking to a church that had a lot of sexual perversion. And they list them all, of every kind, in marriage, outside of marriage, homosexual. They, they, were, they had all of it in their community. And people got saved when Paul preached the message. And here's what he says of them. And such were, were some of you. You used to do all those things, but you don't anymore. But you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, they used to be this way in their sexual lives, but not anymore. Why? Because they came to know Jesus and they were learning to keep his commandments. The internal change must result in an external change. See, a lot of people, and maybe you're one of them this morning, and you struggle with whether you're really a Christian, although you may have said a prayer at some time in your life. You don't have assurance. You're not really sure because you look at what you say and you look at what you do, and they don't match. In fact, for some, not even close. See, your personal holiness is not the basis of your salvation. It is the clearest way that you can be assured of it. John Newton said this, the great slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, when he was saved, he goes, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. Do you hear what he says? I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, I've changed. Well, I haven't changed all the way yet, but I'm changing. Is that you? See, here's what John says. And when you have that going on in your life, God is abiding you and his love is, it says in the passage, perfected or completed. In other words, when God's love is in you, here's what happens. 
God loves you. God changes you. And you return that love to God out of obedience by what you do with his word and how you take care or how you love others. See, that's the first red flag that you think that you can say that you know God, but your life is not marked by obedience to his commandments. Here's what he says. It's a lie. Second red flag. The first one was behavioral. This is Christological. Look at verse 6. Whoever says, there's our phrase again, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. See, if you're really abiding him, see, if Jesus is in, it'll, here's a formula, Jesus in, Jesus out. It won't be Jesus in and nothing coming out. No, it'll be Jesus in and out of your lives. It's not the talk that gives you assurance. It's the walk that gives you assurance. Well, how did Jesus walk? In obedience. He walked in love toward his Father and others. Someone has said, you are never more like Jesus when you love like Jesus. But it's not optional. Did you catch that? Look at verse 6. Whoever he, sa- he says, whoever says, if you abide in him, ought to walk. And that ought word is strong, very strong. We use it in a very casual way in our culture, don't we? Hey, here's what an ought. You ought to brush your teeth. You ought to floss every day. Now, it's not a command, and if you don't, people think, well, you're a horrible American citizen. No, it's, but it's a good idea. It's a such, you want to have good teeth? You ought to do it, right? You ought to sleep eight hours a day. You ought to eat your vegetables. Sorry, kids. You ought to exercise regularly. Those are all good things, but they're not going to come by the house and pick you up in the cop car if you don't, right? But the Bible's ought is different. It's an obligated ought. He uses it two other times to give you an idea of what he's trying to say. In 1 John 3, 16, he says, If Jesus laid down his life for you, you ought to lay down your life for the brethren. That's how much you should love. That's the kind of love. See, if Jesus died for you, you should be willing to die for them because you love. And that love has changed you. He uses it again in 4 and verse 10. If God loved you, you ought to love, ought to love others. It's not optional, he says. Assurance comes in your life when Jesus' death objectively and his life subjectively both, both are working in your life. So there is the two tests, the two red flags, the behavioral, the Christological, and the last one, is the relational one. In verse 7, he starts off with the other identity marker, beloved. See, he called them children. He says, you know what? You've been loved by God. And if you've been loved by God, you will love through God. You will do that for other people, he says. This is who you are. He says in the one saying, can you see the last one will be done? Verse 9, whoever says, if you say that you're in the light, if you say that you're obeying the new commandment, Love God and love others. The Old Testament one, now having Jesus as the model. That makes it new. He's the new safety standard. Whoever says he's, now watch, because the little word matters. This is a ball, this is all about the last test, whether you're in or you're not. What you are in, are you in light 
or are you hating your brother and in darkness? Look at verse number 9. Verse 10, if you love your brother, you abide in the light and in him. Verse 11, he who hates his brother in the darkness walks in the darkness. You see what it is? You are either in one or the other. Every single person in here. This is the relational test. And it starts right where you are in your home. See, he wants to know. You say that you know God and you love him, but do you love your wife? Like Christ loved the church. Do you love your husband? How about the way that you treat your kids? How about the people at work that you don't like and you disagree with? How about people in church who rub you the wrong way? He wants to know, listen, when people are all about themselves, how do you respond? How do you respond? The one saying that you are this, but you act this, you say this and you do this, he says it's, it's, it's a lie. And he says, let me tell you how I could, you can know. Because people who are in the darkness hate their brother and in the wrong places, here's what happens to them. Look at verse number 10. If you love your brother in your light, you don't have cause for stumbling. You don't trip over things. You can see. You don't do things. You know what's right and wrong. And you live that way. You don't stare it in the face and just go your way and do your own thing. You know why? Because you can see. You don't have any case for stumbling and the word is scandalon. You don't have any, you're not being scandalized. You're not doing things. You're not going places. You're not doing those kind of things. Your life is different. Why? Because you can see where you're going. But people who aren't in the light or in the darkness, they're bound up by unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and relationships and with people, and it's gone on for years and they still don't get it right. See, See, they're different. You know why? Because here's what the Bible says about them in verse 11. They don't know where you're, they're going because they are blinded by it. They can't see it. They've been so much, they've been so long in this. They've been treating people this way, selfish, self-centered, talking, unforgiving, unkind, unresolved problems. They've lived their life this way. They are so used to it, they can't imagine anything else. They've been completely blinded by it. Let me close with Luke 16. It's a story called The Rich Man and Lazarus. One guy was rich and one was poor, but that's not the point of it. But one of them, the rich man, he had everything he ever wanted, and outside of his gate every day was a beggar, a poor man, Lazarus. In fact, he had boils all over his body, and the Bible says, and the dogs came and licked his sores. He didn't have anything for anyone to give, and he just pleaded that the rich man would give him the crumbs that came off his table. And the rich man would walk by him every day as he sat outside his house and begged, and he saw them every day. But you know what? He never hurt the beggar. He never did anything mean. He didn't treat him wrong. He didn't say bad words to him. He did nothing when he went by. And the Bible says that one day both of them died. And in the story, if you were listening to it in the first century, the expectation would, oh yeah, the rich guy went to heaven, the poor guy went, because you know, if you're poor, there's a reason, because God's cursing you. That's what they thought. But to the shock of everyone, the reverse happened. The poor man was in Abraham's bosom. He was with God. And he, but the rich man, oh, he was in the flames of hell. He was tormented. Why? But even in his eternal punishment, in talking to Abraham on the other side of things, he says, here's what I want you to do. Send Lazarus. See, 
Lazarus was still beneath him. He was still commanding him. He was saying, here, do this for me and my family because you are less than me. See, his whole life, the rich man thought of himself as superior and that he was better and he looked down on other people and that's how he treated them, without love, not mean. He wasn't cruel. He was just indifferent to it all. And when he wakes up in hell, separated from God, it didn't have to happen, but it did. And even there, he's blinded to it. He can't see that he is still that way. And Jesus says, see, don't let your sin blind you. Look at the way that you treat others. Not because it earns merit or favor with God. We don't do good things for other people so we can go to heaven. But if we're going to heaven, we will treat people differently, Jesus says. And John says, that's the red flag. Now, you've heard them all this morning. See, you don't have to leave here and say, "Mm, I'm not really sure if I die today. I'm not sure where. See, you don't have to say that. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have your sins forgiven, that you have heaven as a home, and that your life can be completely different now and for eternity. The question is, do you? Do you know? Do you have certainty? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus only? Does your life demonstrate that there has been a change on the inside? Jesus says, listen to the red flags because they may be talking to you. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, perhaps you're here this morning and you come here on a regular basis. Perhaps you're here and it's your first time or maybe you've only been here a short time. Whatever the case, the question is still the same. Do you know him? I mean, not about him. Do you know him? And maybe more importantly, does he know you? John said, listen to the red flags. Listen to the red flags. Are you one of the beloved? Are you one of his children? Are you one of the people who say, you just say, a talker without being a walker? Is that you? But you have to be honest. And you have to almost really say to God, please show me, because most of us, if we're not saved, are blinded to it. We've believed so long in our own religiosity and being our own lawyer and think that we'll be good enough someday, hopefully, but I've prayed that this week for you that God would open your eyes. And perhaps this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has done just that. And that's why he brought you here. Because you don't have any confidence, nor do you have any certainty about your relationship with God and your eternal life. But you can today. We're going to sing a song at the close of our service. And whether you're in the balcony or on the main floor, and whether you've come here for a long time or you just started coming here, You can have certainty today. Would you come forward? Coming forward does absolutely nothing other than meeting someone at the front who can take the Bibles, the Bible, and show you from Scripture how you can leave here with the certainty that you have eternal life based on what Jesus Christ alone has done for you through his cross, death, and resurrection. Would you do that this morning? Would you heed those red flags? Father, I pray.
for those who might be here today. And you brought them here because you wanted them at least this last time, one more time, to hear those red flags. Father, I pray that you'll give them humbleness, humility, that they would come and let someone show them how Jesus Christ, the advocate and propitiation for our sins, can change their life now and for eternity. Be glorified in how you work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.